God designed us for life, an abundant life with Him and with one another. But there's a problem. Someone has taken our life. Jesus said the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. We're missing out on life like God intended because we go looking for life in all the wrong places. But there is a solution to this problem. Jesus said he came so that we may have life and have it in abundance. That's why Cross United Church exists, to help people find life like God intended. We believe life like God intended happens when three things are united in our lives. When we're brought to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ, when we're brought together in authentic community, when we're deployed on the joyful mission that God has for us in the world, we experience fullness of life. Life like God intended, united in wholehearted worship, authentic community, and joyful mission is why Cross United Church exists. Good morning, Cross United. It's a beautiful morning here in South Florida. So glad that you've joined us for this Bible teaching. Uh, was in, enjoyed seeing you on the Zoom call a little bit ago. I uh, just want to encourage you to continue to lean into the community that God has put around you, even and especially in this season. Connect to that men's Bible study, the women's prayer on Thursdays. Uh, continue to connect with one another, pray with one another. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 8, verses 25 through 30. So I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to dive in together. John 8, 25. Remember, Jesus has just said in verse 24, If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Who are you? John eight twenty five. They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true, and what I've heard from him, these things I tell the world. They, do, they did not know that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. Let's pray and ask God's help as we look into the Bible. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity together this morning to study the scripture, to learn and to grow together. I pray you would continue to unite our hearts together with you in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ. Unite our hearts together with one another in authentic community and that you would deploy us wherever we are in the joyful mission that you have for us in the world. And you would use this text to make Jesus big in our eyes as he truly is. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're looking at the answer to a very important question, the question of identity. Think about if you were in a job interview and, or, or filling out a job application and someone asked you the question or the, the, the application had the question, who are you? And you had a paragraph to answer. What would you say? How would you answer? Well, what we're going to see in the text this morning that we just read is that Jesus gives a two-part answer to that exact question. Who are you? In John 8, 25, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews, inadvertently ask Jesus the most critical question anyone could ever ask, and that is, who is Jesus? And this is how Jesus answers in this paragraph. In this interview, this, this interrogation that, that the Jewish leaders are trying to figure out who he is. Remember in 824, like I said, he said, I 
am, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. We talked about how that's a reference to the name of God in the Old Testament, ego eimi, and uh, the Greek translation of Exodus 3.14, I am Yahweh, the great I am, and how Jesus is claiming to be God, and he's claiming the identity of God for himself. And we talked about how, how unless we believe the right things about Jesus, that we will die in our sins. But the Pharisees, they, they misunderstand because he says, unless you believe I am, you'll die in your sins. They thought he didn't finish his statement. They thought he was going to add a, a predicate nominative. They were gonna, he was going to say something more about his identity. And they, so they say, Jesus, finish what you were going to say. You are who? Who are you? Who are you, Jesus? That's what they're asking him. And he answers with a two-part answer, a both-and answer. And the first part of the answer is this. Jesus says, I am the eternally begotten Son of God. I am the eternally begotten Son of God. Look what he says in verse eight, uh, verse 25 of chapter 8. Who are you? He says, exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning. Now, it's interesting is this book was originally written in Greek. And the Greek in this, in this verse is, is actually really interesting because the, the, the way it's phrased is actually this. They say, who are you? And he says, the beginning, that which I've said to you. That's which I'm telling you, the beginning. Older theologians took this as meaning Jesus was referring to his eternal origin as the Son of the Father in the Divine Trinity. Now, whether or not that translation is, is right or the, the translation in our Bible is, is right, th- that point is the same because look what he continues to say in verses 26 and 27. He says, I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true. And what I've heard from him, these things I tell you. Jesus defines his identity in relation to his father. He defines his identity as in relation to his origin from the father in eternity past. We've talked a lot about this, about the fact that Jesus is God the son, not just merely the son of God, but God the son. He is a person within the Holy Trinity, one God in three persons. John talks about this all over the place. And the Bible talks about this all over the place. The fact that God is an eternal being, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father eternally giving life to his Son in the fellowship of the Spirit. That there was never a time where God was not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said something similar to this in John 5, 19. He said, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. His speech and his judgment, he says back here in in 8.25 and 26, aren't his. They are received from the Father. That that when when you hear Jesus, you hear the Father. When you see Jesus, you see the Father. When you are judged by Jesus, you're judged by the Father. We shouldn't think of the Son's hearing in this verse as happening sort of in a sequential way. That's, that's how we do things. I, I speak and you hear. I tell my kids something and then they hear and respond. But, but God is different than us. God is different than us. God doesn't have past, present, and future. God has only being. 
And so for the son to hear what the father says is an eternal reality in the life of God. That this is the same as Jesus saying that he received his life from the Father in eternity past. And again, the things in the Trinity are different than things in our lives. When we have children, there's like a multi-step process, right? You have the, the conception, you have gestation, you have pregnancy, you've got birth. And it's this long process from one to the next. But God is different. The Father generates the Son and begets the Son in eternity without any past, present, or future. So there's no sequence, there's no time, there's no mother involved. In God's eternal life, the generation of the Son by the Father is the nature of God. So that eternally, the relation of the Father and the Son is one of begetting, Father begetting Son. And both of them spirating or breathing out the Spirit. In such a way that the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit is almighty. But there aren't three almighties. This is a, an ancient creed called the Athanasian Creed. There are not three almighties, but one almighty. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. But there's not three gods, but one God. The truth that's all over the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the eternally only begotten Son of the Father. We talked a lot about this, and John talks a lot about this, because this is critically important. It may seem like some sort of, like, theoretical thing, like, yeah, I know as Christians we're supposed to believe in the Trinity, but it's, like, really hard to understand. We shouldn't talk too much about it. But in reality, this is at the heart of what it means to be able to know and love and trust God. We know that God is life and he is love because of the fact that he is a trinity. One of the books we have read and we have on our book table when we have our Sunday meetings at church is Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. And in that book, Michael Reeves says, Underneath everything there is not God, generically, but the Father eternally loving his Son. At bottom there is the Father, and that means a lively God of love. A God who is no envious, hoarding miser, but who delights to give out his life and being to his son. At bottom, he is not creator, ruler, or even God, quote-unquote, in some abstract sense. He is the father, loving and giving life to his son in the fellowship of the Spirit. A God who is himself love, having such a God, happily changes everything. This, this is the God that we serve. This is the God that we trust. The personal God. The God who is love and life. Who is the Trinity. And how do we know? How do we know this is who our God is? Well, he has demonstrated it most fully in the cross. This is the second answer Jesus gives to the, the Pharisees' question, Who are you? The first answer is, I am the eternal, only begotten Son of the Father. The second answer is, I am the crucified Son of Man. I am the eternal Son of God, and I am the crucified, or will be seen as the crucified Son of Man. Look what he says in verse 28. They didn't know, verse 27, that he was speaking to them about the Father. So we know that that's how he defines his identity, first of all, in relation to the Father. But also, look at verse 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, that's a reference to lifting him up on the cross, 
then you will know that I am. Again, the same phrase, ego, eimi, Greek, I am, reference to the Old Testament name of God in Exodus 3.14, where God appears to Moses in the burning bush. How do we know that Jesus is God? In other words, how do we know that Jesus is God? We know that he is God because of his death for us on the cross. This is the counterintuitive, surprising reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the heart of the Christian faith is that God took human nature to live a sinless life, to die a sinner's death, and to be buried and raised from the dead. That in that moment of crucifixion, God revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That the deity of Christ, that the Godhood of Christ is surprisingly revealed in the lifting up of the incarnate Son on the cross. When Jesus is lifted up on the cross, for any other person, that is a sign of failure. The most torturous method of execution ever devised in the ancient world. That was a sign of a, of a failed revolutionary, of, of, a, of a condemned criminal. But in Jesus, we see the power and the victory of God. You know, I've been praying a number of things for you, church, this season. I've been praying what I'm calling P prayers. I've talked about this. Some of you know this. Praying for your protection. I'm praying for your provision. Praying God would give you patience. I'm praying God would give you peace. And I'm praying God would give you power. The power of the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting is when we, when we look in the scripture, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit lately, we see the power of God is shown in the most surprising way. That the power of God is shown in the weakness of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. If you've got your Bibles or your app, keep a, keep a uh, spot holder in John 8 and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's writing to them and he says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Verse 23, he, he continues, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. How can the crucifixion of Jesus Christ demonstrate the wisdom and the power of God? Because verse 25, 1 Corinthians 1 25, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Paul continues in, one, in verse 26, and he says, Not many in the Corinthian church were powerful according to worldly standards. That, that in the midst of this church, without powerful people worshiping a crucified Savior, God has shown that the ultimate expression of human weakness and foolishness can prove his power and his wisdom. God saves his people from sin through the seemingly foolish and weak symbol of the cross. You know, we see all over the place now in, in our world, in entertainment and in politics, we see leaders who are so obviously insecure in the way they speak, in the way they defend themselves, the way they lash out, because they're not secure in who they are, and they need to be validated constantly. God is different. God is so secure in his identity that he can prove himself through the most 
obscure symbol of weakness that was known in the world at that time and in the world of our time. God the Son in human nature, Jesus Christ the Messiah, willingly allows himself to be lifted up on the cross to be revealed as the great I am, God himself. And in the cross we know Jesus is God. And we know as he continues in the rest of this answer to the question, who are you? He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me. I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. What's he saying there? He's saying that in his incarnation, in his taking on of human flesh, in the virgin conception, the virgin birth, in his life as a man, he is fully God and fully man, that he lives in perfect obedience to the Father. He lives without ever doing what the Father tells him not to do and always doing what the Father tells him he should do. He obeys the Father perfectly. We were supposed to do that, but we didn't and we don't. We can't do that day by day, let alone minute by minute we fail to do what God has told us to do. God never followed his own way in the person of Jesus Christ. He never followed his own way. Jesus never spoke his own truth. He never walked alone. He always walked with God and pleased God. And he did this in our place because of our failure. He did this so that he could offer up his life for us. That he could offer up his perfect, sinless, obedient life as the eternal only begotten Son and the incarnate, crucified Son of Man. The eternal God made a human being, living a sinless life, dying the death of a sinner on the cross, though he himself was without sin, buried and raised from the dead, so that anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him will be forgiven of their sin and and given eternal life. Because the only solution to human sin is a human death. And the only Restitution for transgressing an infinite God is a sacrifice of infinite value. And the only hope for human pride is the humility of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Think of that. Think of the humility of Jesus in that moment. The self-giving of the Lord. I just got to tell you that rebukes me because of how selfish I am so often. And in Christ, we see this perfect example of humility, self-giving, literally dying for us. And the only remaining question that John raises over and over, this is the point of John writing this biography of Jesus we call the Gospel of John. The, 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 The thing he confronts us with is what we see in verse 30. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. Because here is the counterintuitive answer to the question, who am I? The answer to the question, who am I, can't be found inside of me. It can't be found by simply looking at my strengths and my weaknesses, looking at my own life story. The answer to who I am has to come from outside of me. It's interesting, I was looking up the word identity. And there's a thing on Google where you can look up the occurrence of a word over time in the books that they have on their Google Books database. And the word identity 
you look at the timeline from like 1500, like 500 years ago to now, it goes pretty much like this. And then in 1950, it goes like this and it just spikes over the next 60 to 70 years. Why is that? It's because as we have lost our connection to the past, both in terms of family, but more importantly, in terms of religious faith, you can chart. It's directly proportional to the decline of faith in the life of people in our society, the rise of identity, because people are trying to figure out who they are and they can't get there. The only way to know who you are is to know who made you, why he made you. Our church exists to help people find life like God intended. And life like God intended is found in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, brought together in authentic community and sent out on his mission in the world. So the question is, will you believe in Jesus and will you keep believing in him? Father, I just pray you would press this word into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. God designed us for life an abundant life with him and with one another. But there's a problem. Someone has taken our life. Jesus said the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. We're missing out on life like God intended because we go looking for life in all the wrong places. But there is a solution to this problem. Jesus said he came so that we may have life and have it in abundance. That's why Cross United Church exists, to help people find life like God intended. We believe life like God intended happens when three things are united in our lives. When we're brought to God in wholehearted worship through the cross of Jesus Christ. When we're brought together in authentic community. When we're deployed on the joyful mission that God has for us in the world, we experience fullness of life. Life like God intended, united in wholehearted worship, authentic community, and joyful mission is why Cross United Church exists.